0: We are live. Thank you so much for joining again as we continue our study of Beis Habakhira, the chosen home, the place where Hashem selected for His presence to dwell in a manifest way amongst us. Now, to be sure, the Beit HaMikdash was a very holy place. But I don't know if you or I would necessarily feel that holiness. As if a Sefer Torah is holy, whether you feel it or not. Yom Kippur is a holy day on the calendar. Your feelings, regardless. The question is not if we are capable of feeling holiness, or perhaps projecting our delusions onto a particular geography, or maybe a certain day. The question is how do we comport ourselves? What's the appropriate way for us to behave, or how should we treat holiness? Simply stated, every human being is deserving of dignity, more so than the right of a person to have dignity. It's the responsibility of other people to afford them that dignity. Suppose I don't feel like it. Suppose I don't see anything redeeming in a particular person. Suppose, to me, a person's a beast or a monster, or I'm irrelevant to me. I have no feelings for them whatsoever. Seeing them bleed or suffer does no way move me. Well, besides the fact that you're in an awful state of humanity, you still have a responsibility. The fact that somebody would be cold, frigid, indifferent or even incapable of feeling the pain of another human being doesn't exonerate a person from behaving in a manner that's compassionate even if you don't feel compassion. In a way that's sensitive even if you don't feel or have any kind of sensitivity. There isn't a mitzvah in the Torah for us to feel the holiness in the Beit HaMikdash. We might have or might not have It certainly seems that in the first Beit HaMikdash we felt the holiness in a very real and palpable way. People capable of prophecy experienced revelation of extraordinary sorts, even actual prophecy. And perhaps ordinary people experienced a higher level of consciousness or awareness of the Creator. The second Beit HaMikdash was a Galut Beit HaMikdash, in a sense, We don't know of divine revelation that resonated within its confines, but the halacha remains the same. During the period of the second Beit HaMikdash, there were additional stringencies which we don't know if applied to the first Beit Beit HaMikdash or not. And yet once these halachot were set into motion, it becomes our sacred duty and responsibility. There were fences. Literally and figuratively, a fen- uh, 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 that were established or erected by the sages. And those fences were put into place in the fulfillment of the dictum, Asusi Yogla Torah. You have to make a fence, proverbially speaking, for the observance of Torah law, perhaps because people didn't feel, perhaps because we were no longer aware, and it's precisely because we cherish. And because we love the Beit HaMikdash, it's precisely because we cherish and love our relationship with God that we would have put those added layers of restriction, added layers of rules and regulations into play. During the course of this chapter of Rambam, the seventh chapter of Beis We've been focusing, by and large, on the idea, the Torah idea, that we're obligated by virtue of the Torah's commandment to revere and respect the Beit HaMikdash to the point that it actually should be felt in the chambers of our heart. That could mean something as simple as the quickening of one's heartbeat when you would approach the Beit HaMikdash. Now being common people or people of flesh and blood we might not have appreciated the Beit HaMikdash fully or felt its holiness. Our sages did it's the favor of creating an aura around the base HaMikdash. Here's a simple example I think all of you might be able to relate to. I've met famous politicians, prime ministers and presidents during the course of the last 25 years. Some of them I met when they were kind of unknown and then later met them in their official capacities. Some of these people I met after, they were no longer sitting in office and i have to tell you that when you meet somebody famous and powerful who's sitting in office there's something different about it and i thought about it do these people really have that extraordinary magnetic charisma or is it is it the environment or the atmosphere created around them and i'm pretty sure it's the latter some people have charisma some don't have much but when somebody occupies a particular position The nature of it is that they aren't really accessible and they're protected by many layers or levels. You don't just get to bump into them. Invariably as human beings, we are affected by that. It's almost impossible not to be affected by fences, layers, and scrimmages. That's the logic behind many of the rules and regulations established by the sages some of these rules and regulations are actually biblical Hashem and his Torah created three layers or levels of holiness and yet in total the rabbis created a system comprising ten layers of holiness in our previous episode we spoke about Har HaBayit the proverbial or famous Temple Mount no, it's not what you're thinking. And if you missed the previous episode, the entire tabletop plateau isn't actually Har Habayit, although it's referred to as such. The Har Habayit, or Temple Mount, we're speaking about, is the area that was sanctified, chamesh al chamesh meot ama, five hundred cubits by five hundred cubits. After entering the area of Har Habayit, which was ringed by an enormous wall, and had seven gates of entrance, after going into the Harabayat, we then encounter a latticework, a crisscross fence made of wood. This is known as the Soreg. Interestingly, although the Soreg is another layer of scrimmage or seems to ring the Beit HaMikdash as an outer orbit of something special, here it isn't mentioned. In Halacha 15, we learn about next level sanctity moving up from Yerushalayim, the city of Jerusalem, into the actual Har Abayit. Today, as we learn Halacha Tet Zion, the 16th paragraph in the 7th chapter, we talk about the Cheil. What's the Cheil? Well, the Cheil, first and foremost, was inside of the latticework. It seems that the lattice work, as the rush explains it, was established for the purposes of allowing, carrying in a semi-public domain on Shabbat. It's true that the Har was walled in, but its walls were not made for the purpose of people dwelling. And as such, it could not help or assist us to carry in the quasi-public kind of domain or enormous arena that was the base of Middash compound. Interestingly, our sages did not attribute a next level of sanctity to the soreg. Whoever was allowed to be on the har ha was allowed to pass the area of the soreg, the latticework fence, which had small openings that allowed people to enter. We then encounter the next outer orbit. This is called the Khil. The chel is described by the Rambam in the fifth chapter of Hilchot Beit HaBechira, in the third paragraph. The Rambam there goes on to talk about, after describing Har Abayit, or Mount Moriah, and talking about its, its specific strictures, and not seven, but pardon me, seven is the Azara, five gates of entrance, one in the west, one in the east, one in the north, and two on the south. In addition to this, there was a space, the, the, the areas, these enormous doors, were 10 amot wide, that's 15 feet wide, and they were 20 amot high. That's high. And amot is at least 18 inches. There were enormous doors and enormous walls, because the walls were higher than the doors. Now, inside, there was a much, much smaller area called soreg. Soreg, as we know, learned as lattice work, was only 10 cubits high. It's about this high. Not very high. A little bit higher than the average man's waist. That did not serve as a protective wall per se, but rather to fulfill the halakhic requirements for what we would refer to in our Torah language in Eruv. A wall, barrier or separation that allowed for the carrying in a public domain. No added layer of sanctity. No next level holiness. However, inside of the area of the soreg was the chel. The chel was a pretty high wall, 15 feet high, according to Rambam. In fact, this is not only in the second Beit HaMikdash. We know so because Rambam quotes a verse from Lamentations. Lamentations, written by Jeremiah, speaks of the first Beit HaMikdash. So we know that this wall existed during the time of the first Beit HaMikdash, although we don't necessarily have evidence of a Soric. In Kinot, which is the way Rambam refers to Lamentations, the book of Echa, it says, The wall and the wall mourned. What's the difference between Cheil and Choma? Well, the way we understand it is, Cheil refers to a smaller wall. Choma refers to the larger wall. That's the wall of the Azara. The Azara's walls were enormous. Once again, we had doors that were 20 amot high. That's a pretty high door. And then the walls that were 20 amot high, which is about 30 feet high, had a wall that was taller than that. Yet the chel, according to Rambam, was essentially a wall that was only 15 feet high. So, a smaller wall. It's usually or typically translated as a rampart. Ramparts have historically been fortification. In, um, in what we would call fortification architecture, the rampart is a length of bank or wall that forms part of a defensive boundary. You've seen things like this in castles, hill forts, settlements, or other fortified states. Now, of course, there was no hill or bluff that surrounded the actual area of the Beit HaMikdash. This was a tabletop mountain that was all paved with flagstone. There was no excavated earth or masonry here. And yet, despite the fact that ramparts were usually a combination of external ditches to defend the outer perimeter of a fortified site or settlement, here, we tend to call the chel a rampart for lack of better language. And here's the interesting thing. Rambam says the chel was a wall. According to Rav Avadya of Bartanura, he does not define it as a wall at all. Rather, he refers to it as an empty space. So what was the chel? Well, it seems to me it was a rampart or fortification of sorts, <laughs> meaning it was not designed to stop an invading army the Beit HaMikdash didn't even have armed guards. It had an honor guard. They didn't have weapons. The reason they were there was to increase the esteem and the honor of the Beit HaMikdash. And so, here we had an added layer of spiritual fortification. You felt you were kind of going up a level. And as such, going from level to level of holiness. At each checkpoint, so to speak, more of the people who wanted to enter were politely informed that they couldn't go further. Kind of the entrance requirements are increasing and the people allowed in, the population, is narrowing. All of this serves to create a greater sense of awe, a greater sense of esteem, which is what the seventh chapter of Hilchus Beis and the Rambam is all about. So, Bartanura says it was a space. He doesn't tell us about its demarcation. Rambam maintains that it was in fact not simply a space, but it was actually a wall. We don't know if the Khail from the Bartanura's perspective is part of the mitzvah of honor or esteem or awe. And as such, there may not have been any impressive fortification, any kind of remarkable wall or mark or sign of demarcation. But according to Rambam, it makes perfect sense. It follows his line of thinking. He sees everything here as yet another step forward. Imposing ten amot, fifteen-foot walls, yet another wall. So you entered the Harabayat, you entered these outer walls, which we can still see today that are not even talked about, don't have an added level of sanctity, but nonetheless look very impressive. Has an effect on us. And then we enter the actual area of Harabayat. Enormous walls. You enter there, there's a Sorig, Not very impressive, but then again, it wasn't built for that purpose. That was there to satisfy requirements of laws of Shabbat. And then we come up against another wall. A smaller wall. But an imposing wall nonetheless. Fifteen feet is fifteen feet high. Or could have been higher. And once you went past the hail, you knew that you were entering into yet a more hallowed space. And as said, the number of entrants has now been narrowed. Rambam goes on now to tell us about who is allowed into the chel. Continuing on Halacha Yudzayin, Ha-chel me Menu. In what way? Now I want to point out before I go any further that the Ravid emphasizes that the holiness we speak of is not biblical because the chel isn't a biblical point of demarcation. And as such, what what we're talking about now is, at best, a rabbinic restriction. Why did the rabbis create these restrictions? Simple. This was another mark of demarcation designed to make us, who might not have been feeling the holiness, to respect it nonetheless. This was conducive to the kind of mood. It set the stage. For entrance into the base of Another checkpoint. Yet another wall. Yet another scrimmage or area of sanctity. Next level holiness. Who, who isn't allowed past this point? So Rambam tells us that Ein Akum Utmei Meis Nida l'sham. He lists three forms of ritual impurity. Two are biblical. One is rabbinic. The first is people who weren't Jewish. Why couldn't somebody who wasn't Jewish enter the base of Middash? Does Isaiah not say Ki beti betefila Does Isaiah not say that my house is a house of prayer for all people? Why did you have to be Jewish to have a relationship with God? Well, actually you don't. <laughs> that, that notion is entirely wrong-headed. Every human being Rabbi Akiva taught, is created in the image of God. Every human being is gifted with a capacity for a relationship with God, and every human being actually has a sacred duty, a responsibility to develop and nurture that organic possibility, that natural predisposition to having a relationship with God. That relationship has to be experienced or enjoyed on God's terms. Otherwise, it's called idolatry, creating a God in your own image and having a relationship with your own mirror self to essentially project one's likes or dislikes, be they physical, emotional, cerebral, or moral or ethical. If it's your arena, your orbit of comfort, hey, that's not a relationship with God. That's a relationship with yourself. If you're in a relationship with another person, You need to know what that person loves. You need to know what that person likes. You need to know what that person expects. Just superimposing your value system or your likes or dislikes on that person is a guarantee for a spoiled relationship. Of course, God is impossible for us to guess or imagine what might he like. The only way is to listen to what Hashem said as I described in yesterday's episode in great detail. So we must understand that every human being was given the capacity to have a relationship with God. And the Beit HaMikdash is the geography, the space, more than any other on planet Earth, that enabled us to nurture and cultivate that organic predisposition, that possibility. Why wouldn't we allow Gentiles into the Beit HaMikdash? It's a really good question. For reasons that are beyond the purview of this particular class, At a certain point during the Second Temple era, our sages were forced to make a state of ritual impurity necessarily apply to anybody who wasn't Jewish. Now, this is really uh, an an unusual thing because as a rule, the the notion or idea, Torah idea of ritual purity and impurity, it's not a notion, it's it's a real Torah idea, only applies to Jewish people. We, as Jewish people, are susceptible to what's called ritual impurity. A can't even become ritually impure. That's part of the heightened sense of responsibility, spiritual task that God gives us. But as I said, for a number of reasons, our sages were forced to assume that anybody who wasn't Jewish was in fact ritually impure. This is a rabbinic form of ritual impurity. And here, we get ourselves into a catch-22. So for those reasons which are beyond the purview of what we're talking about now they're in a state of zov now a zov as we learned yesterday is the person who has that unusual kind of emission of seminal material if a zov if they're like a state of zov then how could they even enter the Harabayat? well it seems that it's an artificial state of zov it's not a biblical state of zov and as such our sages did not preclude them from entering the actual harabayit area they could enter the holy mountain however because the rabbis had created this artificial form and it should be noted and pointed out that when the rabbis created something artificial doesn't mean fake chas artificial means man-made but man-made is god-sanctioned it's not any different than the prohibition of consuming poultry and milk no observant jew would ever do something like that chas v'sholem. it's not different than kindling a menorah which is also if you will, artificial. It's not biblical. It's man-made by the rabbis. However, they were sanctioned by God, for that was the power that God entrusted the Sanhedrin with. It's not different than the celebration of Purim, which is a hallowed and a holy opportunity that comes to us through the hands of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin have created this rabbinic kind of ritual impurity. They chose not to extend it to a regular zov, so he could enter the Gentile could enter the Harabayat, still allowing him the privilege of being in the temple scrimmage area on the holy mountain but at this point at the Chael he was stopped it's interesting if you visit the southern archaeological gardens outside of the Harabayat, they recovered an actual piece of stone a stone placard if you will that's written in Greek and it says no Jews are allowed past this point that was the rules that they operated with during the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. And as I said, for that reason, not because we didn't believe that a Gentile or a non-Jew is created in the image of God or has the ability to achieve holiness and closeness to God and is a recipient of God's largest and benefaction and reward in paradise and the world to come. All human beings, all human beings are created in God's image. We do not subscribe to any kind of distinction other than Jewish or not Jewish. There is no other distinction that exists for us. There is no lifestyle, orientation, color of skin, or religious affiliation to us that distinguishes a person's being created in the image of God. That's always been the way Jewish people viewed things. However, because the rabbis had to create this form of ritual impurity, from this point in onward, from the chelon onward, the, the, the Jewish zov had already been stopped at the harabayit the non-Jew, who was considered as of, was allowed up until this rampart wall, or the Khil. To Meimeis, as you may remember, we learned in yesterday's, in the previous episode, that the person who came in contact with the dead was, in fact, allowed to enter the Temple Mount, and we learned that from the idea that the Temple Mount is a replication of the camp or scrimmage of Levi. Moshe Rabbeinu was a Levi. He was living in Machna Leviya in the desert in the sinai desert and who was in close proximity you guessed it as we learned previously the coffin with the bones of yosef and they were the undertakers the people who carried that so clearly to Mace, despite the fact that it's an extraordinary form of ritual impurity and in some ways the most severe is nonetheless allowed to enter the holy mountain however from the Chalon onward they were rabbinically proscribed from going further. Furthermore, we learned that a tevul, pardon me, a boil nida, a person who was intimate with a nida, and that's, I'll simply say, a woman experiencing menstruation. I refer you back to the previous episode where I discussed this in great detail, and please don't take it out of context and don't read into it what doesn't exist. Go back and listen. In the previous episode, I talked about this in great detail, so we talked about the nida, now we're talking about the boyal nida, the person who would have had an intimate relationship with that woman, would be akin to her in the same state of ritual impurity, because that form of ritual impurity is contracted in a more severe way when it comes not through casual touch, but actual intimacy. So Rambam tells us that these individuals, the non-Jew, the person who's come in contact with the undertaker, the boyal nida, the person who's been intimate with the nida, are Ain, nichnasim l'shem are not permitted past the point of those ramparts or chel. And now, we're in the chel, we move into the outer courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash, but that, Be'ezrat Hashem, we'll be talking about in our next episode. Thank you so much for joining today. If you enjoyed this class or found it informative, please, go ahead and share it. I'd love to see your like or comment. And finally, if you aren't yet subscribed, please take the time to do so, and don't forget to enable notifications, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thank you for joining. Have a gorgeous day.